Last week, uh, we started talking about our, our theme for this upcoming year, which is Life Together. And the title of that theme comes from a, a book published in 1939 by Dietrich Bonhoeffer entitled Life Together. And in that book, um, he talks about the value and the, the, how essential it is to learn how to live together with one another as a Christian community. And he, he does so in the context of an underground church in Nazi Germany uh, during the, the height of a tumultuous uh, political and religious situation, and one that would ultimately cost him his life. And he gives a lot of strategies and, and, and uh, helpful tips and things for uh, ways that you can practice communal life that will help people grow closer to each other. And we're not going to like use that book throughout the whole year as our guide or anything like that, but the idea of living life together, the idea of being a community who loves and prays for and helps and shares with one another is essential to what Christianity is all about. And the way we're going to start this year off looking at the idea of living life together is with a study through the book of Romans. Uh, the book of Romans is a, a powerful theological statement on Paul's gospel, and people have spent, you know, thousands of years reading, studying, learning, debating the book of Romans uh, as to what it's all about and, and uh, how exactly uh, you can interpret and exegete every paragraph and line and word in it. And we're not going to be able to do, um, in the time that we have, a, an overly deep study of every verse in it, but I do think is as we walk through it, I'm hoping we see how the book of Romans is the Apostle Paul's explanation of how it is that diverse groups of people who otherwise would never be united with one another can come to live and to share life together. Um, you know, we, there's a lot of people in this room right now, and I know I've said this before, but among this group there are a lot of differences. Um, there's generational differences uh, from like the oldest to the youngest. There's a pretty big gap there. Uh, as you look at the, around this room, you see that people have interests, uh, varying interests. Uh, you know, some people are interested in sports, and some people are probably interested in reading, and some people are probably interested in video games, and some people are interested in, in musicals. And like, you can, you can find that there's going to be a wide variety of interests and hobbies, and some of them, it's like what one person's interested in, or what one person dedicates their time and money and, 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 uh, and, and research and stuff into, would be completely boring to another person and they would have zero desire to do anything with that, you know? Um, and that's true with like all kinds of people. In fact, if you were to look, some of our jobs are vastly different and the things that you deal with on a daily basis are completely different than the things that someone else deals with on a daily basis. Um, if you were to uh, look at all of our family lives, some of us are in very different stages in our family. Some of us have very different experiences with our families. Uh, when you look at our bank accounts, some of us have a lot more in there, and some of us have a lot less in there, and so some of us are able to do more things, and other people are able to do fewer things, and, and when it comes to travel, and like, there's all sorts of differences among us, uh, rooted in education, and occupation, in uh, finances, in interests, and in hobbies, and in age, and in worldview, and in politics, I, I guarantee you, and in theology. We talked about this a little bit last week. If we were to take a poll of every person in here on every hot-button theological and or political issue, issue, I guarantee you, in fact, I know it, there would be variation. There are a wide range of perspectives on a lot of different topics in this room. And if it weren't for Jesus Christ, I do not believe 
we would all be gathered together, sharing a meal, sharing prayers, and singing with one another. I don't get together and sing with a lot of folks. I don't get together and share a, a, a memorial or a communion fellowship meal with a lot of people. I don't get together and, uh, and talk about the things that matter most in this world with a lot of people who I have nothing in common with, except for when I'm right here except for when we're all gathered together, because we have something that is in common that is greater than all of those differences, and that's Jesus himself. And the fewer things that we base our unity on, I think the better. If in order to have unity with someone, you have to have Jesus and common interests, then you've made unity a little bit harder. If you have to have Jesus and common interests, and you have to be of the same uh, cultural background, then you've made unity a little bit harder. If you have to have Jesus, common interests, the same cultural background, and uh, shared hobbies and things, like, the more that we add to unity, the harder it is to have. I think when you talk about unity, instead of trying to add all of the things and try to, try to make all sorts of things that we can be united on, I think perhaps a better goal is to strip away all of the things that are unnecessary for unity and to focus on the one thing that truly and ultimately matters more than anything else. And I think the book of Romans really helps us do that. I think the book of Romans is going to help us learn how to live life together under the lordship and kingship and sonship of the one who matters more so than anything else, because there's a million reasons to be divided. There's a million reasons to, to you know, section ourselves off into some group that has nothing to do with this other group, and the world does it all the time. And what Paul is going to try to do throughout the book of Romans is give theological and social reasons for us to strip away all of those barriers and to truly become one people, even when the rest of the world is telling us not to. As we look at the book of Romans, I'm going to start off, and this is just going to be kind of an introductory lesson to what's going on in the book of Romans. Um, I think we need to ask, what is the book of Romans all about? And I th I'm, I'm going to say three things. Uh, you could probably organize it differently. But for the purposes especially of living life together, this is our focal lens that we're going to have as we read the book of Romans. But one of them is how to live at peace amidst empire. And living at peace, I think, is going to come in two ways. One, peace with God. But also, and this is really, really important, peace with one another. Uh, there's a book that came out uh, a year or two ago, Reading Romans Backwards uh, by Scott McKnight. And in... Uh, he focuses, I think, a lot, and I think he, he makes this theme pretty clear on the idea of how to live at peace amidst empire. And as you read through Romans, you see this idea emerging over and over again. We actually talked about it quite a bit in our Bible class this morning, uh, the, the contrast between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of heaven. Well, I think Romans is going to pick up on that contrast as well. And especially when you're living at the heart of the Roman Empire, it is important to be able to say, instead of Caesar is Lord, you turn that into the allegiance statement that Jesus is Lord. And Romans is going to teach us how to do that. And Romans is going to make that the primary point and the primary basis of our unity. Faith in the Lordship of Jesus is what unites us. Allegiance to Jesus as our one true king, whether you are rich or poor, black or white, Jew or Gentile, slave and free, male and female. No matter what it is that the world might use to separate you, no matter what it is that the empire might use to separate you from other people, Romans is calling us to live life together. In Romans chapter 12, there's, a, there's this massive shift in contrast that takes place between Romans 12 and Romans 13. 
Romans 12 begins by telling us not to be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to the culture or to the empire or to the way things are structured in this common world, which, for example, might have people uh, divided from one another based on whether you are a, a millennial or a boomer or a Gen X or a Gen Y or whatever. Like, there's all these things that, like, I mean, you, you don't have to be on Facebook very long to see one generation complaining about another generation. Like, don't be conformed to that. Be transformed and renew your mind so that your entire life becomes an act of sacrificial service to the Lordship of Jesus. And when you do that, you find out not only can you have peace with one another, not only can you have peace in the midst of empire, but you can actually demonstrate to the rest of the world what life together really is supposed to be and what life together is really all about and who the true king of the universe actually is. Because in Romans 12, he begins to describe what that transformed life looks like. And he talks about the, the way of the cross and the sacrificial way of, of seeing uh, good in others and rejoicing with others. And, and when someone persecutes you, you bless them rather than curse them. And you do good to your enemies. In the embodiment of what Jesus did on the cross, how he lovingly sacrificed himself for others, becomes the defining characteristic of our life together. We see the cross and we carry the cross as we serve and live with one another. You contrast that with Romans 13, which is where he begins talking about how to live in the midst of empire. And what is fascinating is the very things that he tells us not to do, like take our own vengeance, our revenge in Romans 12, are the very things that empire is said to do in Romans chapter 13. And there's this difference between the way that we live in his kingdom and the way the kingdoms of this world often work. But we, Romans 13 goes on to say, we fulfill the law, not by strict adherence to Torah or strict adherence, well, I mean, not by strict adherence to uh, uh, a, a particular interpretation of Torah. Uh, it will come from Torah. Uh, but we fulfill the law not by strict adherence to the laws of Rome either. We fulfill the law by loving one another as Christ has loved us. That by loving your neighbor as yourself, which is Leviticus 19 from Torah. But all of that is to say that he gives us a new way of life in the midst of empire that shows us how to be at peace with one another and at peace with God. And it's actually that life together with Jesus as our king is what gives us that peace. You know, you, when you begin to see the world and who the president is, or who the governor is, or who the king is, or who the prime minister is, or whatever. When that becomes a fact, rather than the source of your allegiance, you can begin to see Christ as the true king over it all. And I think that's the direction that Rome, the book of Romans is trying to lead us into. And when you can see the world that way, Paul then shows how that message of Christ being the one true king is actually central to the gospel that unites all humanity into one family. It's when people of every nation, whether Jew or Gentile, whether slave or free, see Christ as their one true common Lord and God as their one father of all, that we can shed some of those other distractions that keep us from unity and help us unite together into one family. And this is actually the story of the Bible throughout the entire thing. 
Like, going back to Genesis, the, the first sins that we see about are, are universal sins. Uh, whether you're talking about the sins in Eden or the sins uh, of, of Cain killing Abel or how that spiraled wildly out of control into an entire world was filled with violence and bloodshed and, and cruelty and every thought of mankind was only evil continually, uh, Genesis 6 says. Then you have this flood. And then things kind of start over with Noah, supposed to be this new Adam-type figure. And, and, you know, he's supposed to restart things, but he ends up falling into the same traps that Adam fell into. And the story ends up with, with him being naked, just like Adam was naked, and him cursing uh, his, his, one of his sons and blessing the other ones, just like the story of Adam had sin and cursed. And in the sin, uh, you know, Adam sinned with a tree, and, and Noah, it was a, he, he had this vineyard that he got drunk and naked. And like, but the stories, they retell themselves, and we end up seeing humanity again, fraught with sinfulness and violence. When you get to the Tower of Babel, you see the, the height of human arrogance. You see the height of human uh, achievement that is used not for the honor of God, but in order to make a name for themselves. And you see that they are then dispersed throughout the land. But that dispersion ended up taking that pride and arrogance and sinfulness with them. Rather than flooding the world again, what God does in the very next chapter, Genesis 12, is he calls Abraham and promises Abraham that he would bless Abraham, but that also through Abraham, all of the nations would be blessed and all of the families of the earth would be blessed again. The call to Abraham sets the foundation for this goal for the whole world, whether Jew or Gentile, whether you're a descendant of Abraham or not, to be back under the umbrella of God's blessing. And, and as you read through the rest of the Old Testament, so much of it is focused on Israel. The, the law itself is designed for Israel to become this light that would attract the nations around them to see the true God creator of all. And, and there are these visions, whether you're talking about Isaiah 2 or whether you're talking about uh, Daniel 7, you know, there's all, they're all over the place, of, of all of the nations pouring in to Jerusalem to worship God as king. Or Daniel 7, where every tribe, people, language, and tongue, they all worship the Son of Man as Lord over all. Regardless of what nation or nationality they are from, they're united under one king. And the story of that one son of man becoming king who unites the world under his reign is the story of the gospel. It is the story of, of uh, how Jews and Gentiles are fellow heirs and Jesus is Lord of all and we live with him now and we live with him in, uh, you know, for eternity and we're forgiven of sin so that we can become the people that he has called us to be and we are freed from the bondage and the slavery of sin so that we can become the humanity that God desires for us. And all of that is the story of the gospel, but it is central to the, to the foundation of our understanding of unity. And so Paul's going to going to lay out that gospel in the book of Romans, and he'll ask several questions along the way. Like, for example, what about the law? You know, there were, I think sometimes, uh, sometimes as people study Romans, there can be a little bit of confusion about the role of the law in the book of Romans. Um, Romans is not against obedience to God at all. Uh, if you look up the word obedience in Romans, you'll see it quite a few times, and it's always a good thing. In fact, from beginning to end, as we'll see, it's kind of the goal of Romans. You're trying to bring about an obedient faith. So what does obedience have to do with works of law? Are they the same thing, or are they not the same thing, or what exactly is works of law? Is works of law just 
Torah? Is it legalism in any form or any sense? Like, what, what exactly is? And, and interpreters uh, are across the spectrum on how exactly to interpret Romans. I think, um, I think what's happening in Romans, and you see this in the ministry of Jesus. We talked again about it a little bit going through Matthew, but you see it in other places. I think there were certain aspects of the law of Moses certain laws that become particular sticking points in the life of the early church. And you can read through the New Testament and see what they are. What are the things that people argue about? Circumcision was certainly one of them. Circumcision was one of those laws that, that was a big deal. Um, there are other laws that don't seem to ever really be controversial. And Paul will even quote, Paul will say, don't be covetous. But that wasn't like a sticking point. It's not like you had some of the church saying, no, we should be covetous. And the other church saying, no, we shouldn't be. Like, that wasn't a controversy. Circumcision was, though. Uh, certain food laws, I think, were, became contentious. Uh, Sabbath was something that was contentious. Temple was certainly something that was contentious. Um, the, the idea of bringing Gentiles into the one, that was certainly something that was contentious. Uh, in fact, if you remember, um, like Paul, when he was arrested in Acts 21, he had gone to the temple for the purpose of sacrifice, and they accused him of bringing Gentiles. And that was such a big deal that he was then uh, arrested for that, and he spends the rest of the book of Acts in prison, like going before kings and being brought as a prisoner to different places until he ends up in Rome. But like those were ideas that that were contentious. And what unites all of those topics is those were all the topics that separated or distinguished Jews from Gentiles. Gentiles were not circumcised. Jews were. Gentiles ate pork. Jews didn't. And there are these, these things. If you look at Acts chapter 10, Peter does not want to go preach the gospel to Cornelius. And he has to have this vision three times of, of this uh, scene where these unclean foods, these unclean meats are brought down before him. And he's told, rise, Peter, kill and eat. There's a connection between what he thinks about unclean foods and the way that he thinks about Cornelius, who is a Gentile. And Peter, upon hearing that, by the way, he's been a Christian for quite a while now, says, Lord, I have never eaten unclean food. Like, he's still keeping kosher. Like, he's still keeping the food laws. Uh, and, G and what he's told is, don't call unclean what I have made clean. So the point isn't, oh, the law of Moses doesn't matter. You can eat unclean food now. The point is the world has been changed by Jesus irrevocably from this point forward to where things that were once unclean no longer are. And the world has been opened up to other people. And so Paul is not against obedience. And he's not even against um, Torah or the teaching of God. But he does teach a new way of seeing certain aspects of the law that caused the division as radically transformed by the Messiah to where they no longer are a barrier to Jews and Gentiles working together. Circumcision is one of those things. Uh, he's going to spend quite a bit of time discussing how circumcision is no longer a barrier between Jews and Gentiles. Food laws are some of those things. Certain days and celebrations, uh, you'll see this in Romans 14, they become things that have separated, but now they no longer do with the Messiah in the transformed world that we now live in. And, and so Romans is going to talk about the law it's not going to say the law is bad. He's going to be very clear. The law is very good. Uh, Paul is not going to say that, that obedience is bad. No, you have to obey God. That's, that's a part of being a Christian. That's a part of Jesus being king. 
But there are certain aspects of the law that have caused division between Jew and Gentile that need to be reinterpreted for the promise of Abraham to bring about blessing to all mankind to come to fruition. And that's the gospel that Paul is proclaiming. Um, other questions he'll ask are about, uh, okay, well, what about the fact that many Jews have not become obedient to Christ as king and many Gentiles have? It's to where now, like, you look at this church and it's mostly Gentile. What about the promises of God to be with his people and the Jewish people? Has God forgotten his promises? And, and like Romans 9 through 11 is going to be working through that issue and showing how, no, Jews absolutely still have a place and still have hope in God's plan, but Gentiles do as well. It's like a tree that the branches that were supposed to produce fruit didn't, and they got cut off, and other branches got cut on, but the goal is that all the branches will end up back on, so that this tree will be a multifaceted tree producing both Jewish and Gentile fruit, and we can all celebrate that. That's the tree that God wants, and how whether you're Jew or Gentile, you still have this role in this place in the family of God and the purposes of God. And so with that being the goal, Romans is also about practically, how do you do that? How do you take people who are completely different and unite them together into one family? How do you take people that empire and culture and tradition and family and history have separated for so long and now wipe those distinctions away so that they can, even with those distinctions, see Christ as number one Lord overall in love and worship together, become one family, even while being a Jew and a Gentile. Like, how do you do that? And I do think it has to do with the supremacy of Christ being Lord over all other things that might distinguish or might uh, divide you. And so Paul is going to talk about how to live in a way that uh, is genuinely, truly Christ-shaped and loving towards one another. If, if you're not willing to be sacrificial towards one another, it's not going to work. If you're arrogant or proud, it's not going to work. If you rank yourself based on your law keeping and you look at someone else who hasn't kept quite as much as you, it's not going to work. Like all of those things are rooted in arrogance. They're rooted in self-centered. They are not the way of the cross and they destroy the unity that Paul is trying to bring about. So with all of that being said, the historical or possible historical backdrop to the book of Romans brings every one of those issues we just talked about to a head as you get to the book. Um, there's an interesting passage in Acts chapter 18. This is back before the book of Romans is written. Paul is, uh, is uh, going to Corinth, and he says he found a Jew named Aquila, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, that's the emperor of Rome at the time. All right, we're talking about empire a little bit. That's the emperor, and he has commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. That's kind of a big deal. Um, you know, imagine if, uh, if he, here in Tennessee they commanded all the Christians to leave or something, or they commanded everyone of a particular ethnicity or background to leave. Like, people are, are being deported. They have to get up, find a new place to live. And so that's why Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla. They were from Italy. They were from Rome. But now they have to go live in a new place. And uh, that happened. Uh, Dates are kind of debated, but a lot of people think around 49 or so AD, which is right during the reign of Claudius. Um, one of the things that's interesting is sometimes you'll read something like that in the Bible, and you'll think that would actually be a big deal. Uh, I wonder if that's written about anywhere else. Well, it is. Uh, there is a Roman historian uh, named Suetonius who writes a Life of the Caesars or the Twelve Caesars, and he has a, a section on the life of Claudius. And when he's talking about Claudius, 
He says, as the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them from Rome. And so he, he, we have a, a corroborating historical uh, piece of writing that talks about this expulsion of the Jews from Rome. And what's interesting is it's actually Suetonius who gives us the reason why. And he tells us it was because of Crestus. That's a little bit of a debated phrase because Crestus might just be the name of some guy. But a lot of people think that it might actually be a reference to Christ himself. Uh, that basically... If it were spelled correctly, that E would be an I uh, in, in Latin, and so it is a misspelling of the name of Christ, but those types of misspellings were very common. And so a lot of historians think that it was the types of arguments that we've been talking about between Jews and Gentiles uh, that were getting heated, and there might have even been persecution. We know that from the book of Acts, there were times that, uh, that people even traveled from city to city to persecute, and it raised uh, the, the awareness of the authorities, and people had to either you know, put a stop to it or kick people out of the city. And so some think that it was actually discussions and disturbances about Christ himself that led to Claudius expelling the Jews from Rome. But I want you to think about what that does to a church. If Rome is primarily a Gentile city, but you have a church there that I think might have been primarily Jewish or at least started as a Jewish church. When you read through Acts 2, you get this long list of all of these Jews who are in Jerusalem for Pentecost, and some of them are from Rome. And we know that 3,000 people were baptized, and we know that they went back. And, and we're not told in the Bible exactly how the church in Rome was founded, but that's at least a possibility. In which case, that would mean it was a, primarily a, a synagogue church or a church that was, uh, that was mostly made up of Jews. But then Gentiles had been added all the time. And what happens when you have a church like that, and now all of the Jews have to leave? You have a mixed church that becomes a pretty much 100% Gentile church. And then what happens when uh, Claudius dies a couple years later? Eighty uh, fifty-four is when Claudius dies. There's an interesting passage in Romans 16. Romans is written after the death of Claudius, a couple years after. But notice who's back in Rome in Acts 16.3. Uh, he says, Greet Aquila and Priscilla, uh, or uh, and Presca, uh, my uh, fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles also greet the church that is in their house. So a couple fascinating things about this passage. One of them is that Aquila and Presca, or Priscilla, her name could be written a couple of ways, are back in Rome now. That means after the death of Claudius, those Jews who were kicked out are able to come back. What do you think that means for a church that might have been predominantly Jewish, and then the Jews leave, now it's like completely Gentile, and now the Jews come back, and they have different ways of eating, different ways of celebrating, different ways of reading Torah and Scripture. Like, they are different people in a lot of ways, and now they're vying for power as to who's going to be the dominant force or culture within a church. And Paul is, has this whole gospel about how we're all supposed to be one family, but now you have a church that is at friction with one another, fighting over who's going to be the dominant force in the church. Well, it sounds to me like Romans is going to need, a, the church in Rome is going to need a, the the foundation of the gospel re-explained to them again to show how it addresses their particular situation. And I think that's the type of thing that you have going on in Romans. By the way, uh, Priscilla and Aquila being Jews, notice how it says right there, all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks for you. Paul is going to over and over slip in little things like that to show Jews and Gentiles 
thankful for one another, working together, as he greets this big long list of people, about half of them are Jews and about half of them are Gentiles. In, in uh, Romans 15, he's going to talk about this gift that he's trying to give the church in Jerusalem, Jews, and he's trying to, uh, to gather the funds for it uh, from Gentile churches so that they can financially support Jewish churches during a famine. He's going to come up with practical ways uh, and, and uh, in, in, like ministries and, and particular gifts that they can do with one another to, to, to form and to bond this unity. He's going to talk about theological reasons. He's going to give social reasons. He's going to give pretty much every way you can imagine in this book for taking two different groups of people and uniting them together. And you see it right there. Just imagine the types of problems that this type of historical situation would create. And then we get to the book of Romans. I want to uh, read two key texts from Romans before we bring the lesson to a close. The first one is uh, the introduction of Romans, the first couple of verses, and then I want to read the conclusion of Romans, the last couple of verses. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 1. We're going to read the first six verses here. I'm going to highlight a couple of things as we go through it uh, that I want you to, to, to note or to think about. Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So notice, like, the first verse, he's already bringing up the gospel. And he says that he was set apart for the gospel. And then what he's going to do is he's going to explain that gospel in the next couple of verses. I was set apart for the gospel which he promised beforehand. So it was long time—this gospel was promised a long time ago. Through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures— so throughout Romans, Paul's going to keep appealing to these prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He's going to go back to the law of Moses. He's going to go back to Isaiah. He's going to go back to the prophetic writings of the Old Testament. And he'll use them over and over and over to teach his gospel. Because apparently the gospel is taught in the prophetic writings from way back then. I think some of those passages that I mentioned about Gentiles and Jews uniting together in one voice, those are gospel passages. Those are the types of passages Paul is going to go back to quite a bit. But he says that this gospel was promised by the, by the prophets in the scriptures a long, long time ago. In verse 3, it concerns his son. So the, the son is who the gospel is about and who was spoken about also in these passages long, long ago. And verse 3 says, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. So like biologically, he's in the kingly line, all right? Uh, and so Jesus being king is going to be central to this gospel. And then verse 4, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Son of God has a couple of different uses in the Bible. It is uniquely used of Jesus and his role as the divine son of God, but it is also a kingly term. Uh, like when you read through the Old Testament, you'll see sometimes God's kings spoken of as being his child or his son. And uh, I think you have those ideas right here where Jesus is king from the line of David, which was promised beforehand in the prophets and which has a purpose in verse 5. He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about, notice this, the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his name's sake. So with this long promised uh, kingship and sonship and lordship of Jesus, this is the gospel being proclaimed to bring about the obedience of the Gentiles. So the Jewish scriptures 
teach that the Gentiles will become obedient to one king who is over all, and that is Jesus, and that is his brief explanation of the gospel that he's going to be presenting. Uh, that's what Romans is going to be leading us towards. Uh, look at the last uh, couple of verses in Romans. Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. Verse 25, Paul ends with this beautiful word of praise or this doxology of of who God is and what God has done. And it says, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. So he brings up his gospel again. So the beginning and the end are going to share quite a bit. Uh, One of them is the word gospel. According to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Remember how it says concerning his son. Well, here it concerns the preaching of Jesus Christ. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret in long ages past. So long ago, this, this was, uh, this was uh, uh, written. It was mysterious, and it has been revealed now in these last days. But verse 26, but now is manifest by the scriptures of the prophets. Remember, that's the same phrase he was using earlier, the, the, the prophets of the scriptures. Now he calls them the scriptures of the prophets. But we have that same thing. According to the commandment of the eternal God, has been known to all the Gentiles or all the nations leading to the obedience of faith. And we have that phrase, obedience of faith to all the nations or all the Gentiles right here at the conclusion as well. And he says in verse 27, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be glory forever. Amen. If you read these two texts, the beginning and end, the bookends of Romans, and you look for key ideas, this is how you have peace within an empire. This is a brief explanation of the gospel and what it does. And this is how you live according to that gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. By the way, all the highlighted words are the words or ideas that are in these two different paragraphs that are in both of them. The word gospel, the word Jesus Christ, the the idea of it being spoken or coming long before in the scriptures of the prophets. All right. So the gospel that came a long time ago in the prophets, it brings about the long-awaited obedience of faith among Gentiles to the Jewish king and Messiah. Gentiles and Jews are united together because they share a king, they share a Lord, they share a savior, and that is Jesus. And that's the same foundation of the unity that we share with one another. As Paul is making his climactic point in Romans 15, he ends with a series of of scriptural quotations that make this point uh, very clear. The final one being from Isaiah 7.10, The root of Jesse, which is a reference to a son of David. Jesse's the father of David. Uh, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. So there's going to be a son of Jesse who ends up ruling the Gentiles. And in him will the Gentiles hope. The Jewish king and the Messiah becomes Lord over all, Jew and Gentile alike, thus uniting all mankind into one family under, in one kingdom under the lordship of Jesus that's what the book of Romans is all about. And we'll spend the next uh, couple of months uh, trying to, uh, to bring that about. Um, so, as we draw our lesson to a close, here's the challenge that I want uh, you to, to think about this week. This week, I want you to spend some time in Scripture. So it's a fairly simple challenge, but read the book of Romans this week. Really spend time digging into the Word of God and read through this book with a particular eye towards themes of unity and reconciliation that will pop up throughout. Um, If there's anyone here this morning 
who would like to take part of this offer of the gospel of Christ, having your sins washed away in baptism, and having Jesus become your King and Lord for this point forward. Please let that be known. If you want to talk to one of our elders, we have some in the back there who'd be willing to help talk with you about any struggles you're going through, or if you need the prayers of the church, please let it be known. But if you have the need, please come and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.